Hi, I'm Lori, and I'm a compulsive overeater. I am thankful for what I have received in Overeaters Anonymous, but if I am to keep it, I must remember my sisters and brothers who are still in the chains of compulsive overeating. I am willing to break my anonymity to share my experience with those who are still sick. I am thankful today that I have been relieved of my chains, that I have discovered a higher power, experienced a spiritual awakening, and can tell my story to others. For today, it is through the love and friendship of others in OA that I have found freedom. Thank you, Lori. And Frank, do you want to come up and introduce our speakers? Hi, everybody. My name is Frank. I'm a compulsive overeater. And I have been working on the program committee. We're a little trio. Um, uh, Is Stephanie here? No. No, not yet. So Stephanie, Helen, and myself designed the program and got you these amazing speakers. If you like them, I got them. And if not, Helen did. Please join me in welcoming our first speaker, Ira. Hi, my name's Ira, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And I'd like to thank Helen uh, and everybody for inviting me. I'll go anywhere to hear me talk. You can't hear me? Can you hear me now? It's probably better that you don't, but that's okay. Like I said, I'll go anywhere to hear me talk. And uh, um, I uh, came into Overeaters Anonymous by, by way of Alcoholics Anonymous. My abstinence date is September 7th, 1983. So that if I make it to this, and I, I, am, I came in at age 34, and if I make it to my next abstinence anniversary, my next birthday I'll be 69 years old. So that means that if I make it here, that I will have been alive abstinent as long as I was not. may not mean anything to you, but it means a hell of a lot to me. See? Because this stuff doesn't stop, you know. Uh, I came in through, my sponsor was sponsored by Clancy Emmislund, who started Pacific Groups of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's a guy I worked for, angry Jewish guy like me, although he was much better looking than I am and had hair, and, you know. Um, and I learned a lot. First, uh, you know, I came from a Jewish background, typically, uh, typical American Jew, you know, cultural, culturally, but not religious at all. Very angry. I was angry at my father, angry at everybody. In fact, a couple of people have pay, paid me some nice compliments who are longtime members. They said, when I came in, I was so full of rage. Guess what? I'm still full of rage, but I don't have to act on it. I don't have to let you know I'm angry. 
I used to have to let everybody know what my opinion was. My high weight was 325 plus, and my driver's license lied when I came in, in that it was a state of California driver's license, but it said that I was, um, uh, I think it said either 248 or 250, but that I was 5'11", and I've never been over 5'7", in my adult life. <laughs> so what my sponsor, Marty, I've had the same sponsor now for 30 years, 31 years, uh, 32 years. He said, that's what we do. We lie. That's what we do. You want to know why you overeat? And he said this to me, because I'm trying to figure it out and all. He says, because you're a com-. And he, this is him talking to me. And all my connections into the program have been through Alcoholics Anonymous. And there is a difference, being a sober alcoholic and an abstaining compulsive overeater, but I can't use that as an excuse, and a lot of people do. A lot of people do. Uh, but he said, he said, that's what we do. Joe said to me that the road to the goal is the goal. That's my first sponsor. Um, that what we have here to share with you, why I'm here, and I live in Calabasas, and it's a religious experience to go eastbound anywhere on the 101 to try and get someplace on time. <laughs> um, it's, it's all we have is experience. That's all we have. There are no authorities here. I may think I'm an authority, especially I've done 16 World Service Conferences, you know, and, and uh, Nancy, Jay, like, you know, uh, uh, pushed me to run for GST, and I lost big time. And I also, like, was diagnosed in 2009 with MS, but what I also found out was that I'm one of 10% of people who get multiple sclerosis where it never gets worse. That's something to be grateful for. See, when I came in, I was at war with everything and everybody. You know, and it talks about, you know, all the things. The alcoholic is very much like, you know, the actor. And, you know, we look at ourselves in the mirror and think, my God, what have I done? You know, and all that kind of thing. So, so but there is... This is, again, it's only my opinion. If you really want long-term abstinence where you don't relapse, you've got to sponsor somebody. All of the other stuff, all of the other service is great, but in the, the um, I was told to read two pages a day of the big book, reread it, put it down, because he knew that I wanted to graduate. I wanted to figure this out. And the thing is, what I have to understand about this disease or malady is that there is no rational reason for it. You know, it's not rational. I'll put it like this. If you're, my kind of overeater is this kind. Whether you be a bulimic or, you know, this is not to exclude anybody. But I'm the kind of person, before I came to the program, who, let's, let's take Thanksgiving because we, you know, we all know what that's like because everybody overindulges on Thanksgiving or pretty much everybody does, right? So we all overeat, especially the kind, whatever the foods are that, like where you really swell out your stomach to, you know, and you feel lousy just like everybody else does. 
okay? And, you, and I get up in the morning the next day after Thanksgiving and feel miserable. People who are not addicted to food say to themselves, you know what, I feel miserable, take an Alka-Seltzer, maybe I'll walk, I'll cut back today. You know, I'll, I'll do something to feel better. I say the same thing, except after I say it, within four minutes, I'm back to the refrigerator eating the same stuff that I know is going to make me feel sick and continue to do it anyway. Why would I do that? Why would I do it? Because you're a compulsive overeater, dummy. Somebody asked Jackie Gleason one time, why do you drink? You know, because he was a real alcoholic. He says, you know, people talk about their family. He says, I drink to get bagged. You know? There is no reason. See, so like any attempt to find rationality for why I do what I do, for me, is just futile. What it says, and and I was told to read two pages of the book in the Appendix on Spiritual Experience, in the big book, which is where I come from, and I was on the literature committee for like 10 years of, you know, and I saw the OA-12 become the OA-12 and 12, you know. My story happens to be in the second edition. And of course I was ticked off that they took it out. I'd be lying if I said, you know, but I'm okay with it. I do understand the rationale. Or maybe I don't, but I put up with it, you know. But it's, 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 it's in there, and, and I was, it was an honor to have it put in. You know, they asked for submissions, and a guy I was sharing 10 steps with, put, you know, for years, Sam D., used to, uh, you know, he put his story in. He didn't get it. You know, it just happens. It's just, but the point is this. The reason I'm here, and this is the spiritual change, and I'm going to talk about that, I think, quite a bit here. Um, I live in Calabasas. Uh, I have, there used to be a a meeting down here at Mariner's Library in either Costa Mesa or Newport. I forget where exactly it was. I was, the couple of times I was asked to speak there, I was always late because no matter how early I left from Calabasas, to get down to Newport Beach. So, like, the spiritual thing is, you know what, I can't do that. Like, Helen asked me about, you know, when would I be available? And I said, Friday night is really problematic. You know, I still work. I'm a music writer in the business, which I think needs a 12-step program, but that's another story. (laughs) Um, But it's my desire to do something good that, that I, even when I'm swearing at traffic or whatever, at my core, I want to do something decent, which I never knew about myself before I came into the 12 step, steps. I want to do something decent for somebody. I make my bed every day. There's no, no particular, I mean, like I, I'm, I met my wife. In she was the literature person on a Friday night meeting in Reseda when the oh they they we do have it especially for you West you know West L A Hollywood people there's a saying that came out of Pacific Group of Alcoholics Anonymous for those of us who live in the Valley is we may not be pretty but we are sincere so 
and you're looking at somebody who may not be pretty and may not be sincere, but can fake it pretty good. So, um, um, that's like George Burns. You know, they asked him when he won the, I love this one. Um, he was at the press conference for, like, I think, Sunshine Boys, and he had, read, he, he had won the award first time out in a movie. You know, and so they were asking him, how did he do it? He had his cigar, and he said, it's easy. It's honesty. He says, if you can fake that, you got it made. <laughs> See, and that's the point, is that we do fake it. Nobody's completely honest all the time. Nobody's completely clean with their food all the time. Nobody is. I don't believe it. Because we're human beings. There is no perfectionism. Okay? The only thing the big book says about progress, not perfection, which is quoted around here a lot, is spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. It's people-pleasing. It's looking for approval, and it's understandable. But if I don't, if I, in order for me to solve a problem, I've got to figure out, I've got to find out clearly what the problem is. Okay? And there's a lot of white elephants in the room, you know? And I'm only sharing my experience. I sponsor about six or, six or seven guys. We get together once a month for a, like a big book study, and it's rotating now. Started at my house, and we go from house to house, you know, that kind of thing. And the guys are into it. You know, we, we, we read a story. We, we, everybody gets, you know, like to pick a paragraph from the story and pick somebody to expound on it. That way it's always random, you know. That's what we do. I go to a, my, my favorite AA meeting is called Students of the Big Book. It's on Friday nights. And they divide the first 164 pages into 35 sections. And then you read a section through, then you go back and reread paragraph by paragraph, and anybody who wants to share on it gets to as many times as they want. And there's not all these rules about how it's supposed to be. We're just trying to get better. What my AA sponsor said, we are not bad people trying to get good. We're not even sick people trying to get uh, well. We're good people trying to get better. I like that. That's what we are. I don't think there's anybody in here who, who, wants, who means ill for everybody else. I mean, I may get hurt, disappointed, get angry, want to get... Re- the point is, is if I want to live well... If I want self-esteem, I have to do estimable things. This is the third time I've lost 100 pounds, but I've kept it off now for over 30 years. And I'm okay being five... Now I'm not even five seven. I'm five six and three quarters. I sure, you know. <laughs> but I can admit that to you. you know. And I don't have Robert Redford hair. Never did. I'd settle for hair, you know. <laughs> But what I'm saying is, is that so it's one person helping another. That's where this stuff comes from. You can go, you can be, you can, I've had, I think about the only intergroup position I never had. I think I was chair of the San Fernando Valley four times in my time. Like I said, I went to 16 World Service Conferences. I've been secretary of meeting, program chair. I program chaired uh, one of the, uh, with, with um, Barbara O oh and, and Rochelle, I think one of the, when the San Fernando Valley last did the R2 convention, we, did, we got all the speakers and stuff. 
So I've had those experiences, you know. But the point is, at its heart, the thing I have to do if I want to abstain is help another overeater to abstain. And see, that's where the spiritual, this is my view of the spirituality we're talking about, where it says spiritual progress. My nature, generally, is very narcissistic, self-centered. I don't care about, give me, give me, give me, and don't let the door hit you on the way out. I could be president. That's an outside issue. (laughs) Sarcasm is one of those defects I'm just not willing to get rid of. Okay, so... So, but the point is, that's my nature. That's what gets me into trouble. It isn't the things that happened itself. That's what it says in the third step of the big book, you know. If only we get what we want, and we know what's best. If only this would do, if only this, if only this, if only this, right? And when it doesn't go, go my way, it says either I get, you know, I try to manipulate things by being very nice or solicitous, or I get angry, and stuff still doesn't go my way. That's my problem. Selfishness and self-centeredness, we believe, is the root of our problem. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-centeredness, self-pity. And selfishness, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. And we're convinced that we didn't do anything wrong. But it's, and, and, and I love, I'm going to digress. People misstate, misstate the 10th step, too. What most people think the 10th step says is continue to take personal inventory, and when we did something wrong, promptly admitted it. That's not what it says. It says continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Some of the stuff that's hurt me the most is stuff that where I've had the wrong idea about something, and only when I realized that, you know what, it's like, for instance, I'm in, I'm in the entertainment business, I'm a music writer, and have been for years, and sometimes I'll get this idea in my head that I did something wrong or something happened where I'm not working because of either something I did or they don't like me or this or that, and I'll find out later that that wasn't the case. The problem was that I was impatient, and I'm fine. And underneath it's fear of in economic insecurity, because I want to provide for my family. My wife is an actor, and she has her own company, and, and you know, we really got hit in 2008. But here's, there's always something. See, that's the thing. My sponsor, Marty, and I'm going to talk about this now, uh, is 90 years old. He's been my sponsor for 30 years. We talk every day. I, I call my food into Ken G, who's got 36 years, right? But Marty has liver cancer, okay? But if you ask him how he's doing, he says, I'm all right. In fact, we, he was an ardent, the other side supported. He's, you know, and we've had some very um, animated conversations about, you know, but, you know, one of the reasons we do that is because he feels good doing it. He has, he has his stuff, but he's willing to do whatever it takes. He says, I don't like it. I don't like the way it feels. But he's willing to do whatever it takes to deal with it. He has macular de- degeneration. Okay, so like in one eye, he's got 15% vision, and the other about 60. And he works on his eyes every day. But every six weeks, he has to have an injection right in the pupil of the better eye. 
Now, they can, they, they can do a local anesthetic, but he has to have it right now, okay, if you can imagine that. And you know what? He does it. He doesn't give you a bunch of reasons why he can't do it or he won't do it or he shouldn't do it or he's frightened to do it. Or, he doesn't hear about that. You know, I got to tell you, if you're afraid to get on a plane, the only way that you're going to get over to fear is to get on a plane. If you're afraid to give up a, uh, some food, a food that you know is hurting you, the only way that you're going to get over it is to give up the thing that you're afraid to give up. And so what they used to tell me in, in Pacific Group when I would negotiate or try to, they would laugh at me, and that's good. It's real important to be laughed at for me because I take myself too damn seriously, you know. But Joe would say to me, he'd say, who's running this? You really think you can run it yourself? Go for it, you know. You really think you can? Then why are you here? I mean, you may as well go out, you know, look, I like to eat like everybody else, you know. Actually, I don't like to eat like everybody else. I like to eat very special stuff, you know. But the idea of recovery for me has come down to something very simple. is helping other people. That's why I'm here. You know? That's why I'm here. Uh, it's nice, you know, when people who I haven't seen for years come up and say, hi, it's great. It's great to see you, you know? It's a nice thing. I don't know what God looks like. You know? Um, I'm Jewish, and the first prayer that I resonated with in these rooms was the Lord's Prayer. Now, you talk about how nuts we can get, Right? So one of them, and Helen goes to this meeting too, it's like Serenity Sunday, it's a great meeting. It's a great meeting, but there's some weirdness, okay? Because somebody apparently decided that they didn't want to hear the Lord's Prayer, or I don't know how it worked out, I don't go to that meeting on a regular basis. So we, we won't do the Lord's Prayer, because it's a Christian prayer. There's nothing that I know of the words that directly refer to either Jesus Christ, Christianity or anything sounds like a nice prayer to me, and it's one. It's the first one that I ever resonated with. Now here's the the craziness. The craziness is one of the readings that they have is a prayer of Saint Francis. Uh, you can't get more Catholic than that. So how can you? It, well, why do we do that? Because I'm a compulsive. That's why. But somehow the Lord's prayer is can't be said. Lord, make me a channel of thy peace. St. Francis can be said. You know, we need to, like, like the last thing that uh, Dr. Bob said to Bill when he was dying of, of cancer was, let's not louse this thing up, let's keep it simple. You know, we forget, we get so much into this minutia of how things are supposed to be, even in, in the program here. You know, some of the best meetings I go to have the least format, you know, have formats that are the simplest. We used to just read chapter 5 and maybe a vision for you, and that was the only readings. Now it's like, you know, uh, we have chapter 8 of the format. You know, it's like, it's like there's all of this stuff, you know, and, and it's like, and at the same time, I don't go to my home meeting anymore. My home meeting used to be the 100-pounders meeting on Wednesday nights in the, in the Valley. And the reason I don't go 
And I went religiously for th- uh, over 33 years because I learned, he says, that part of the reason I was told that I go is to show everybody that you can continue to stay abstinent year after year after year. And what's happened at that meeting is not me, nobody attacked me, but there's an, you know, they say the opposite of love isn't hatred, the opposite of love is indifference. Okay, then what's happened is, is that nobody wants to share, it seems, you know, and that there, there's no energy of, and like we were, you know, like uh, I was at Serenity Sunday last week, uh, Roz, uh, from Orange, you know, from here, uh, took her 30th. It was like the hand of God came down. I mean, I swear. It was, it was a lot of us collectively got there. We didn't, you know, we didn't, nobody made a plan to be there, but there were so many old-timers there. It, the, and it, the feel of the meeting was like whatever. It was electric, you know. It wasn't about me or made me feel good. It was just incredible, you know, and that and the point is, is, is like we say in the music business, you go for the moment. Like, there have been times when I've been involved with a movie score or something where there was some magic there that could not be architected. You know, there was just magic, and you can't control it. You know, you try to duplicate it, maybe. Sometimes you get lucky, but you can't. And that's, I think, what God is. You know, I, I mean, I. I went to study the spiritual part of my religion, the mystical part of my religion, Judaism. And what I found is most of what's, you know, I'm not going to get into the esoteric part of it, but most of a lot of what they say is exactly what we talk about. Exactly. It'll, it'll tell you, if you get into it, why it works. But, but it's It's amazing. And, it, and why did I do that? Because it's a d- desire to do better. See, that's all you have to have is a desire to do better. And quit kidding yourself. You know? People talk about being comfortable. I don't, I don't buy that. I, not the people that help me. My wife says it well. She's been absent in about 20 years. She says you've got to fight for the right to be un- uncomfortable. So... Um, if, if, in other words, like if you're looking to be comfortable, food can do that real good, you know. Food, getting up late, you know, all that stuff that, you know, the problem with people like us isn't that we eat, you know, it's how we feel afterward, you know. So what I, like what it says in the, in the appendix on spiritual experience about what that is, is this the terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening used many times in this book, which upon careful reading show that the personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism has manifested itself in many different forms. Okay? The personality change sufficient to recover from compulsive overeating. So ergo, if... uh, I'm still overeating. I haven't had that personality change. It's not a moral crime, but that's the goal. And it says most of those changes are of the educational variety because they happen slowly over a period of time. Friends of the newcomer see the changes long before he does himself or her. You know, but that's the idea. That's the that's the thing, and it's constant. I have health problems that I didn't have when I came in. 
I have the problems of getting older, which I didn't have when I came in. I have, I have like, financial things have changed. You know, there are all kinds of things. Sexuality stuff still comes up. And you uncover this stuff bit by bit. But you're kidding yourself if you think that you find that stuff and can eat at the same time if you're a member of Overeaters Anonymous. You know? Because if, my, if, the, if the goal for me is to become more helpful, that is to carry the message, and it, the 12th step is in three parts. We have a spiritual awakening. We try to carry a message and practice these principles in all our affairs. And in order to do that, in order to have that, if I have the spiritual awakening that it's referring to, my personality must have, have had to change so that I can abstain. See, and I'll tell you this too, and I hear a lot of it these days. Insight is not a spiritual experience. In other words, therapy is a good tool, and awareness is a good tool. But if the reason that I overeat is because I'm a compulsive overeater, knowing that stuff isn't going to help me one bit. That's been my experience. That's been my experience. So the only thing left is to try and help people. And here's the thing I I also, as long as I've got the podium here for a couple of minutes, here's the thing that I think, and I'm going to say something that is my opinion only, you know, and take what you want, is I don't agree with the way it talks about finding a sponsor. It says find somebody who has what you want. The problem is when I'm in the middle of the disease, what I want changes like every 15 seconds. (laughs) You see, what do I want? You know, I want to be beautiful. I want to be that. You know, I mean, it's like, okay, thank you. Um, but what I tell people is find somebody you can really talk to and call them up. And you don't have to say, can you be my sponsor? You can just call them up and see what happens. With my AA sponsor, I was doing everything he told me, and it was seven years later, we had a talk on a Saturday afternoon. We said, you know, he says, I think we have a sponsor-baby relationship. And I said, yeah, I think we do. And I had already done a four-step with him. You know, and all this stuff. The interesting thing is that the word sponsor doesn't even come up in the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. The first time you see the word sponsor is in the story Vicious Cycle, the sixth story of the pioneers. And the reason they call it sponsor, and a lot of people don't know this too, is you've got to remember in the Depression, right, everybody was very money conscious and job conscious and really afraid that if they were labeled alcoholic, they might lose their work. So in order to get to a meeting, somebody had to bring you that they knew, i.e. a a sponsor. That's that's where the word came from. But it's just somebody that knows who you are, that you can talk to one-on-one about what's really going on, not about what you want them to know at an OA meeting. And again, that's my experience. That's how I see it doesn't mean I'm right. It just, that's how I see it. You know? And, and how the rage went away for me is just the experience of feeling okay about myself. See, it's a very interesting thing. People who are secure, and you know, we talk about that hole that's missing, you know, the hole in us. It's emotional insecurity. That if I feel secure, it doesn't matter what you think. It's when I feel insecure that I depend on everybody to hang on every word, and if one of you don't, 
then I must have done something wrong or, you know, all that stuff. That's, that's what that is. And you know what? I like the problem for me is I find being emotionally secure sometimes boring. You know, you know I'm, I'm, it's just like it's more exciting. It's like going, having an illicit relationship, and I've done that. In the program, I did it. You know, uh, but it was exciting. And, and for somebody who had never had any excitement before, to feel attractive to somebody and to have them respond and all the excitement of what happens in the movies... Thank you. Uh, what happens in the movies was terrific. And I'm the one that ended it. She wanted to go on. You know? So what do we come to? What the program has given me, I remember hearing this uh, at a Pacific Group meeting, and the speaker said it this way. She said, thank God I can walk the way I talk. Thank God I don't have to act the way I think. Okay, so what that means is I get all the feelings I had all along. I get them. My food is never is not perfect. I mean, sometimes there's too much oil in my vegetables. You know, I go up and down four or five pounds, you know, over a period of time and, and stuff, but it ain't like it was. See? Okay, so... so what this whole process for me has been is how to, be, how to be fit and connect with the world around me. See, that's what the higher power thing is. is and I have to manifest this stuff physically. So what I was going to say to you guys, uh, uh, all right, your sponsor asked you to do something you don't want to do, right? Okay, now you can negotiate, you can debate, and it ain't going to get you anywhere. But what you have the right to say and I encourage you to do this with your sponsors or anybody that you're looking for direction from. If somebody tells you to do something, you say, what's your experience when you did it? Because the whole point of this is to make it safe for you to talk to this person. And I mean, we all have our war stories or horror stories, but that's because of ego. I love telling people what to do. I got a Napoleon context. How can I help but have a Napoleon context? I'm only 5'6". And three quarters, yeah, like, thank you. You know, I love telling people what to do. I love ordering people around, you know. But that's not what this is about, because I could eat or drink over that. Anyway, it's enough for me. you got an even neater speaker, an even shorter speaker coming up next. Thank you for letting me share. One more time, join me in thanking Ira. Please join me in welcoming to the stage, Ida. and I am a compulsive overeater. Okay, during this week, I had, this weekend, I had some really brilliant ideas on how to organize my pitch here, and then I, I just immediately forgot, you know, forgot them. But last night, 
when I went to bed, wired for sound, it came to me. And then when I woke up at 3 o'clock this morning, it was still there. So that's what I settled on. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend three minutes talking about the way it was. I'm going to spend seven minutes on my first 37 years in Overeaters Anonymous. And I'm going to spend 20 minutes on my last five. And I'm going to time myself. And it starts now. First of all, and I've started my pictures around, so if you um, just don't believe anything I say, please believe my pictures. And yes, I am five foot one. I used to be five foot two. And, uh, but one of my sponsees, my nickname is the tiny and the mighty who must be obeyed. <laughs> and this is from a lady who's at least a head taller than I am. Okay, three minutes. Oh, now I'm down to two minutes and 21 seconds on how it used to be. Okay, I'm only giving that much time to what it was because there was nothing unique about what happened to me. You know, I, alcoholic father, compulsive overeating mother. Father died uh, from an um, he bled to death from his esophagus, which is a typical way for alcoholics to go. On my 20th birthday, my mother died of heart failure. She was diabetic. My oldest sister died of, of heart failure. She was a diabetic. Uh, my brother was a diabetic, and he just they just found him dead. But I'm going to assume that it was either a stroke or a heart attack as a result of his diabetes. Um, I have a sister who died of breast cancer because she didn't get to the doctor in time. She thought it would just go away. So she, in essence, died of denial, as many of us do in this program. Um, I, um, I, I did not come from a religious family. However, I was introduced to the concept of original sin at a very early age, and I am 71 now, and I'm still overcoming it. Okay, and the essence of original sin is that at my core, I am bad. I was born that way, I'm going to be that way, and that's the way it is. And uh, as a child, I, you know, I was fat, but my head, I wanted to be a virgin martyr, and it didn't work out, because... Uh, <laughs> Uh, at about age 22, I decided I was sick and tired of being a virgin, and I did something about it, but I'm still working on the martyrdom at times. <laughs> I also wanted to be Jewish when I was a kid so I could be the mother of the Messiah. And, you know, as a Christian, I couldn't do that because it was already a done fact. Okay. Uh, as a child, I had a consistent death wish. I wanted to die to see God, and I'm st I still deal uh, with a death wish. Uh, I lost weight on pills. My top weight was 240 pounds. Uh, in this program, right now, I'm maintaining 120-pound weight loss. And I've been abstaining for 42 years. Uh, I lost... Oops, there goes the past. Okay, now, now we're up to the first 37 years in program, and I have, I have to do seven minutes. Okay. All right. April 16th, 1975. I phoned Overeaters Anonymous. Nobody answered it. It was before answering machines. My call went unheeded. 
The next day, I, I went to work, and I was 12th shift in my school cafeteria. And uh, lady brought me food plans and a list of meetings. And uh, I knew I was never going to do the food plan, and the list of meetings was for Los Angeles, and I was not driving from Alhambra to Los Angeles to go to a meeting. Uh, then I found out about the Sunday night Alhambra meeting, and, uh, and it was at Crawford's Corners, and there are people here who remember that meeting. It was legendary in its time. And the first speaker at that meeting uh, was this young woman who talked about getting laid at the Renaissance Fair. And I was a, you know, as, you know, semi-virgin, trying to, still trying to think I was a goody two-shoes kind of thing. And um, I came back the next week, you know. <laughs> and the second speaker I heard at that meeting was a middle-aged lady who was uh, being excommunicated from her church for living with her boyfriend. And I will never forget what she said about that. She said it was better to fuck her boyfriend than an ice cream cone. And I, and I came back the next week. Because I was ready. I had had it. I had had it with being fat. And I was willing to do whatever I needed except get a sponsor. I started abstaining immediately, and uh, I've never had a relapse. And so I know that's unusual for, you know, but that's my story, and I'm so glad it's mine. Um, and, but five months in, I got a sponsor. Uh, she was a member of AA and OA, and she trained me in the big book because that was all we had at the time. Since then, I have learned to dearly love the OA 12 and 12. Dearly. Uh, there are parts of the big book I will not read, and I know that's anathema. But that's my story. And I'd suggest you not decide to do that until after you've had about 30 years of abstinence. And then you can make up your mind, you know, what you want and what you don't want from the big book. Okay. Uh, I, a year into program, I started giving uh, service. Above the, above the meeting level, I was uh, at the first ever Region 2 meeting in 1978. I really, you know, that was amazing. And I've seen the list of people who were there. And I'm, I was in really good company. Webster was there, and Doris S. was there, and Joyce Ray was there. And uh, these are all people who are gone now. But uh, so I got in uh, with OA at the uh, Region 2 at the ground level. Oh, God, my screen went. Okay, three and a half minutes. Uh, the, um, and at the same time, uh, getting involved in Region 2, I, I was on the first ever Region 2 convention committee. I was the secretary, and little did I know where that was going to lead. The insanity of what I have done for Region 2 is ridiculous. I, uh, I have uh, been at, on 12 Region 2 convention committees, and that's a year and a half a pop. And uh, um, that's how I bought my insurance in this program. And concurrently, I spent over th somewhere between 30 and 35 years doing re uh, intergroup work, too. So I have bought a lot of insurance um, through my service. Uh, about a year or so into program, I also <laughs> changed subjects. I also got an IUD put in. 
because I knew this program was going to work. And I... And uh, the thing was, was that you know, was a, I had that thing for like nine months, and then I met John, uh, who, who my, my husband. And, uh, oh, Lord, you know, he had had a vasectomy years ago, so I never needed that sucker. So I got rid of it. But, you know, I, I, I had absolute faith in this program. And um, speaking of John, I met him two years into uh, my abstinence. I took him to his first meeting three weeks after our first date, so he knew what he was getting. And I will never, never forget one time he said, you know, I was never afraid to marry a compulsive overreader, he said, because I knew I was always going to be well-fed. <laughs> and he was absolutely right. Uh, I... Um, he was the absolute best OA husband uh, you can imagine. He stood by me through all of my stuff. And uh, he was always with me. He was always by my side. He never stood in the way of anything I needed to do uh, for my recovery and for anything that I wanted to do for my recovery. Um, my story uh, spiritually is somewhat different. I came in uh, totally alienated from God. I returned to my church for a year. I left my church because I couldn't keep my head out of hell. I, I knelt down every night for 25 years, and uh, every night. And then after 25 years of that, I thought, you know what? What the shit am I doing because I do not believe, and I got up, and at about after 25 years in this program, I just announced from the podium that I'm an atheist, and that's the way it's been, and it's been that way now, what, 17, 17 years, and I was not struck dead, and I didn't lose my abstinence, and nobody ran, you know, in the opposite direction. Um, what did happen was that I started getting asked to speak on the second step, which I thought was really a pisser, you know, cause, and, and very ironic, but I was good, you know. And it was different. Yeah. Okay, 987. And uh, anything else about that? 2009, I did my last convention uh, committee. I couldn't, I, I no longer could uh, do it like a lady. And so I retired from uh, Region 2 work. Well, seriously, you know, um, I was worn out. And, and uh, some, <laughs> I think the person is here, but I'll never forget it. Uh, we knew that I had hit the wall when uh, somebody came up and asked me to do something. And I said, do it yourself. <laughs> and she was on the board, you know. <laughs> and I, and, and the, the convention chair came up and she says, Ida, do you need a nap? And I'm going, no, I need a drink, but that was... <laughs> okay, so now I'm on to the last five years, 20 minutes. Now, I've been talking to my husband in the past tense, and that was because he died a year ago. And um, five years ago began uh, the worst five years of my life, without a doubt. And uh, my husband had... Um, multiple medical conditions. 
but in 2012, on the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, I finally took him to the doctor. I had noticed that things were really, really wrong. He was, um, he was having trouble. Um, he was with his decision making. Uh, he was forgetting to pay certain bills that had always been his responsible responsibility at the uh, at the election. He had forgotten how to vote, and we worked. We one of the things we did together was work on elections. You know, on the on the election boards. So I took him to a specialist, and he was diagnosed with mild vascular dementia. He was already being treated for prostate cancer for a recurrence. He had surgery in 1991, and somewhere around 2007 or so, uh, we found out that it was back, and he was doing hormone therapy for that. And so um, about five months later, we went in for a reevaluation and checkup, and his uh, dementia had, was reclassified as severe. And, by the way, when he was classified as mild, the doctor said to me, he cannot be left alone. And that turned my world upside down. After that, I was able to take him to three meetings where I... <laughs> at one, he just started to talk, you know, and everybody there was so loving, and I had warned the secretary ahead of time. I said, I don't know if John will behave himself, and he just started to talk. At another one, he uh, wanted to tell the speaker, uh, he turned to me and he says, can I go tell her something? And I said, oh, God, no, stay in your chair. And then later on, I asked him what he, was, he wanted to tell her, and he said, I wanted to tell her to shut up. <laughs> she said, she has just gone on way too long. And then I told him, I said, John, I spoke as long as she did. And he says, oh, no, you didn't. You know? And I thought, this is getting close to the edge. And then in 2013, I brought him to Palm Springs, and it was fairly disastrous. And that was the end. And, for that, and after that, um, I didn't go to any more meetings. And I didn't go to meetings for about, I don't know, somewhere between two or two and a half years. And guess what? My program thrived. It got better. Because I was, I had to do other things. So uh, the first year of his illness, I, uh, after the diagnosis, I, I pretty much took care of him uh, by myself, even though we had been paying for years for long-term care insurance. And uh, then he had a melanoma, and that was the final straw. I said, oh, I am cashing in. He has paid a lot of money into long-term care. It's time for, it, for us to get it back. And so I got some help. And uh, at first, uh, I was able to get a lot of help, like three days a week, six hours. And uh, it, was, it was quite a relief. But, uh, and, but things were happening to me. I lost 10 pounds without changing my food. I was already thin. I was already very thin. And I go to the doctor, and he says, well, stress burns calories. 
And I said, I didn't say it, but I thought, oh, not if you're a compulsive overeater. <laughs> you don't stress, you eat, and you gain weight, you know. But I wasn't eating because none of this stuff with my husband showed up on my plate. And so I went down to, um, well, <laughs> I've only gained a pound. And the doctor said to me, he, he said, um, I want you to eat um, 150 calories more a day. And I looked at him, and he said, well, I really want you to eat 250 calories more a day, but you're not going to do that, so I'm going to say 150, because he knew me, and he was absolutely right. It took me a long time to just increase my food that much, and I know exactly what I eat because I've, I've weighed and measured my food from day one, and I've counted calories from day one. And so I, um, and I only measure at home. I don't take my scale into restaurants or anything like that. But uh, so I know. And so I was eating the same amount. I lost ten pounds. I was starting to have all kinds of accidents. I was hitting my head a lot. I was walking into glass doors. Uh, I knocked a veneer off the front of my mouth. You know, off the top, my teeth. Uh, terrible bruise on my forehead. Um, I started to lose my hair, and this was why, while I was taking care of myself. I was exercising every day, I was eating right, and I knew that I needed to do something. So I, I, was, I also have a lot of uh, spinal issues, and I, was, I contacted my uh, pain, pain doctor, and I asked her, I said, is there anything for me besides epidurals? I've had like 12 epidurals in my neck and, and lower back over a period of about 13, 14 years. I said, is there anything else? And she writes me back, this is through email. She says, well, we do have a pain management class. And I go, what? Why do I have to search this out? Why didn't she say to me, you can try this pain management class? And, I, and now I had help, and John wasn't, his paranoia wasn't bad yet, so I could leave him alone some. And I signed up for this pain management class through my insurance. And inside, I knew that I was taking it for more than my back, because I was really hoping that this would help me with my husband, too, because I needed, I, I thought I needed something. So... I show up at the pain management class, and it's taught by a psychologist and a physical therapist. And about, oh, maybe it was the second session. It might have even been the first session. They start talking about meditation. Now, I had successfully avoided for 37 years, the 11th step. Because it is, you know, in the literature, it is God-based. And I don't have a God, so it, and that was it, you know. So I, I wasn't doing any meditation. But I am, I am a good girl. <laughs> and I am a good student. And I thought, well... What the hell? And so they gave us a website and, uh, to go to for a guided meditation, and it was secular, which was fine. 
well, of course, this is, you know, health insurance. It, this was not through a church or anything like that. And, but I did not like that website. So I did a search. And lo and behold, the world of meditation came up you know, before my eyes, and it was holy crap. It was all over, uh, all over the uh, Internet. And I settled on um, a podcast from a university, and it was for secular mindfulness. And I found my home. And I started, I went from zero meditation to daily meditation overnight, just like I started to abstain. And it was amazing. It was just amazing. I, uh, I had to go to outside literature. Before this, I, I never used outside literature. I never read anything but program literature. But I had to go to outside literature for my meditation. And I, I, I found books, and I started reading, and I read, and I read. And it's, you know, I've got a nice little library on, mindf on mindfulness. And I, uh, I found more podcasts and guided meditations online. And before I knew it, I was really committed. You see, a bad back and a dying husband got me to do what 37 years in Overeaters Anonymous could not get me to do, and that was to sit. And uh, the results were astounding. The results were simply astounding. And so now I've been a daily meditator for three and a half years, and uh, it's the core of my program. It's the core of my program. I can honestly say to you now, the 11th step is my favorite step. Holy shit. <laughs> and I, uh, I haven't had an epidural since uh, 2013. I haven't needed an epidural since 2013. I have not had the kind of pain that would have driven me to the pain clinic since then. I was able to um, release my husband more through, you know, through meditation. And uh, I, I discovered through meditation that um, the one thing I did not want was for him to suffer. And he was he was starting to suffer. And uh, in, my, in the meditation, I, uh, the mindfulness meditation, I was led to an examination of self-compassion. The hardest thing I have ever done. I swear to God, it was harder to start practicing self-compassion than it was to start abstaining. You know? And in this respect, you know, the big book did not help me because the big book says we are hard on ourselves and easy on others. And I cannot, 
I could, I had to reject that. I cannot be, I have to be loving to myself. And, uh, you know, and, and in the AA 12 and 12, it talks about, you know, appealing, you know there's, aren't you hiding a bad motive under a good one? I've always got to look for what's wrong with me all the time. I have, to, I have to find out what's wrong with me, but how I react to it is completely different than what I used to. Okay. So... My husband's uh, anxiety was increasing, and uh, which limit, further limited what I was able to do. My freedom decreased. Uh, even though you know we had, we could have had way more help. I still had to be there because I had to mediate between him and the uh, the uh, the caregivers because he didn't like some of them, and uh, and then when I if I did leave, he would go into a panic. And uh, I, for over two years, I wore the house keys around my neck 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to keep him from the stairs. Because as another effect of the uh, dementia and the, the strokes that had caused the dementia was he was a severe fall risk. Severe fall risk. So um, it was getting... His, as his anxiety increased, my, my freedom even decreased more. And then came the day when he didn't know who I was. And then came the time when he consistently didn't know who I was. And he didn't understand that we were married. And yet... I knew until the moment he died that he loved me. He didn't know who I was, <laughs> but he loved me. He wanted me there, and there was no substitute for me. And I made the decision to see him, see him through it. And uh, I was so happy to hear the speaker uh, Friday night talk about, you know, his wife and family were more important than his program because First of all, I see that as an artificial separation because I have to practice the principles in all my affairs. And I had to set aside my desire to go to meetings and desire to do this and whatever and, and focus on my husband. Because I realized early on that how I treated my husband was like the baseline measurement of the quality of my program. Okay. I... Uh, I learned to say no to doctors when they wanted to do things to him that I knew were not good for him. I had to really be strong in that, and I had power of attorney, and I had to make the decision, and I did uh, one illness at a time to stop treatment. And um, I, I gave him injections, for uh, blood thinners for six months to keep the blood clots in his lungs at bay, and I quit. And uh, not too long after that, I, uh, I made the decision to uh, take him off of his cancer medication because I was obsessed with trying to figure out the best way for him to die. 
the least painful way for him to die. And I realized, you know, that I'm, first of all, I'm really trying to exercise a lot of power there, aren't I? <laughs> but also, um, there was no way I could do that. So I just gave him over to nature, and I let him go. It, it didn't take that much longer. Um, his oncologist put him in hospice, and he was only in hospice three weeks before he died. But you know what? Uh, I kept my vow. And um, I acted as a woman of honor. And he had a very peaceful death. He really did. Uh, he had no cancer pain. And the, um, the only reasons that I would have had to keep him alive would, would have been purely selfish. And uh, I could have, you know, I could have held the cancer at bay for, for a longer period just to have his dementia get worse. And so I, uh, I gave him over to nature. And uh, during, that, during this time, I, uh, another health thing came up with me. After all those years of abstinence, after years of working out on a daily basis, after you know, maintaining the normal weight for decades, I was diagnosed as pre-diabetic. And I looked at that and I thought, oh shit, not me, not after what I've seen happen to my family. So I went, I had to make a major revamp of my food plan because I had to, to start counting uh, carbohydrates. And I did exactly what I did when I first came in. I started writing everything down and doing the calculations. And it worked. Uh, within a year, my blood sugar was normal, and, and my last two A1Cs were normal. Because I'm not going out like my family. I'm just not doing that, folks. Uh, you know, I'm going to die, but I'll be damned if it's going to be of compulsive overeating. Okay. Oh, by the way, did I tell you my husband was 95 when he died? <laughs> I married an old man, <laughs> or, or he married a young girl, you know, whichever way you want to put it, but he was 95, and, you know, I did a really good job, because he wasn't sick until he was in his 90s. Um, so, oh, God, thank you. Oh, I've been using these this weekend. Um, I gave him one hell of a going-away party. It was so much fun, and, uh, but then my suffering really began. And I knew it. See, as, as he was, when he was alive, I put it off, knowing full well that when he died, mine would really begin. Because I not only lost my husband, I lost my job. Because my job was to take care of him. Okay. And that is when the self-compassion really had to kick in. And if you think of self-compassion as a pity party or soft or making excuses for yourself, oh, please, you don't know what you're talking about. It is 
truly tough, and it takes, you know, it takes a, a lot to put all those old ideas at bay. So last March, I attended a week-long self-compassion meditation retreat, and it was it was a, a stunning experience. They spent one whole morning on shame, and I never would have thought of myself as a shame-based person, but I've had to admit that shame runs through, runs through, just runs through. And, uh, okay, I've got two quick stories I'm gonna finish with, that's my time. Uh, two things that I picked up at the retreat that I wanna pass on to you. One was that you can't open a flower with a hammer. <laughs> and I have vowed to put down the hammer. I used a hammer on myself for a really long time. And I can't do that anymore. And now, because of my mindfulness practice, I am really aware of when I'm picking up the hammer again. And I... Don't think I use the hammer on you as much as I used to either. But that's because, you know, you know, I can't give away what I haven't got, you know, how, however the big book says that. So I can't give away, I can't be compassionate with you until I'm compassionate with myself. Okay. And then the other one was a video that you can find on YouTube. But uh, it, it, it talked about uh, Japanese pottery. These little bowls, when they break, instead of trying to put them together and make them look like they did, they use gold to fix the broken spots. So it highlights the broken spots. Okay? It makes them, makes the bowls more beautiful and more valuable than if they had never been broken. That's us. That is us. We are, we are all here because we are broken people. The program puts us together, highlights our brokenness, our weak spots, and makes us more valuable than we would have been if we were perfect from day one. Right? Right. So... Um, There you have it. It's, um, we, are, we are blessed people. That's all I can say to that. We are blessed people. And I can just see all these gold beans in this room. I just love it. Thank you very much. Well, those two speakers were amazing. Those made my, they made my weekend. And, um, you know, it's such a privilege to hear from people that have decades and decades and decades of doing this. You know, sometimes I feel like eight years, um, 
You know, I know. I know what's, I know what's going on. I know nothing. I know nothing. Um, so thank you again, Ira and Ida. Um, I'm going to re remind you that the convention recordings are still available for purchase outside the foyer in breakfast. They mentioned that if you get them today, they're cheaper than if you get them after the convention. And now's the time to thank everyone who volunteered for service throughout this convention. Your participation has made this weekend a great success, and honestly, we could not have done this without you. So thank you very much. Um, I would also like to thank those who walked before us. Will past convention chairs please stand? And now looking forward, here's Michelle, the convention chair for 2018, who has a few words for us.